So, we are in a new series. Can you believe we only, we only have three weeks left? Boom. <laughs> wow. Tough room. Um, so, we're in a new series called Wholehearted. Uh, how many of you heard Pastor Carlos this morning? Yeah, it's, man, crushed it. Um, we're going to be in First Peter eventually. But uh, we, we have, um, for years around here, used the phrase wholehearted. That's actually not a phrase, it's a word. I went to public school in Alabama, so give me a break. Um, it's, we actually have a mural painted right outside there. How many of you have taken your picture in front of the wholehearted thing? Right? Um, it's a thing, apparently. Yeah, it's this thing. Um... Have you ever thought about why we use the word wholehearted? Anybody? Do you know? Three people. So it's probably timely that we do this, right? You go to a church where we say our purpose and mission is to make wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be wholehearted? Well, we believe that the answer to that can be found in Matthew chapter 6. And I want to look at this really quick as it relates to uh, something that I think is probably going to hit home with almost everybody in the room. I, over the course of the past year, probably year and a half, have come to the realization that um, the real pandemic among your generation is not COVID. Do you want to know what it is? Anxiety and worry. I, it's mind-blowing to me. And it's, it's real, and it sucks the life out of maybe somebody in this room, but more than likely at least somebody you know, right? It's a very real thing. And... If the gospel is true and Jesus is who he claims to be, then we ought to be able to live a life free from that, right? It's not going to be easy, but we ought to be able to live that life. So with that in mind, go to Matthew 6, and I'm going to begin in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. 
and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Here it is, verse 33. This is what it means to be wholehearted. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. I would submit to you that it's not just anxiety, but really everything that plagues us has its origins in this idea that we're seeking other things. Jesus himself tells us that if we will seek his kingdom and his righteousness, everything else will be given to us. That's what it means to be wholehearted, to full-out pursue Jesus Christ above all things. That's what it means to be wholehearted. The apostle Peter would have been there when Jesus uttered those words. So now if you flip over to 1 Peter, we have this letter that Peter writes some probably 30 years after the resurrection. Think, um, always think about Peter at Easter. You know, he, uh, poor Peter, couldn't outrun John. I always think, dude can't get a break. He denies Jesus, right? And is just wrecked. And then somebody, the women come back and say, hey, the body's gone. And they sprint to the tomb, right? And John gets there in front of him, goes in, and John's like, He's risen. Peter doesn't seem to take to the idea quite as quickly. If you, if you go read the resurrection accounts, I, I'm thinking, can you imagine? You've denied him. You've seen him die. You know they put him in a tomb. And now the body's gone. And ultimately, Peter remembers the things Jesus said about him dying and rising from the dead. And he believes it. And then he preaches this amazing sermon at Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. And now Peter, toward the end of his life, is writing this letter. Chapter 1. He knows that since that day he walked into that empty tomb, nothing has ever been the same. And he's writing to encourage people and what it means to live wholehearted. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. So Peter is writing to a group of Jews 
and believers, Jewish believers who have been scattered throughout the region. And they're discouraged, and he's saying, he's writing this letter to them to say, look, this isn't your world. You are strangers in this world. This is not your final destination. Look, uh, don't skip past the first two uh, verses, by the way. Verse two is loaded. Right? How many of you, like, in, you do these yearly Bible reading plans and you're just trying to plow through verses, and sometimes you realize later when you're reading through it, you miss stuff? It's okay. We all do it. Look at verse two. Do you see the Trinity at work in your salvation in verse two? God the Father chose us, the Spirit sanctifies us, and Jesus pays for us. You, the triune God at work in your salvation there in verse 2. And Peter says, listen, you have been called to a new life and a new world by the Trinity. You don't belong here. You're just passing through. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So in these verses, Peter writes about how we can do more than just cope with suffering, than just manage to get by in the world. We can, in fact, defiantly rejoice in a world that is broken. It's this majestic hymn that Peter has given us in these verses 3 through 9. In, in verse 2, he says, grace and peace to you. And what's, what 3 through 9 is are the, are the, are the meat that hangs on the bones of that, right? His chosen ones. Here's why we can rejoice and live wholehearted. I'm going I'm to give you some reasons. The first thing is this. We can live wholehearted and seek the kingdom of God because we have a living hope. A living hope. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope. 
When you realize that the ultimate destination for you is not here, that should give you some hope, not fear. Here's what earthly hope is. It's basically like a wishing well, right? Um, I hope I win the lottery. I hope my kids turn out okay. I really hope I get that job. I hope I pass O'Kim. Too close? Too soon? It's just wishful thinking. That's not Christian hope. Here's, Here's the reality of Christian hope. It is grounded in the actual, real event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's living hope. If If you can't get your head wrapped around that, you can't have any hope. Listen, I this can we just be honest? The world sucks. Right? This is a broken place. I don't know if you've looked around in the past 24 hours. It's broken. People die, people get hurt. Children are homeless, hungry. It's a broken place. That's not our home. You know why? Because Jesus Christ came and lived in a body just like you and I. And he walked among the brokenness. You read the Gospels. Broken people are drawn to him. He lived in this world. And then he was crucified. Not for his friends. Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies, which is all of us. They put him in a hole, right? They had to borrow a grave. And then they roll a rock in front of it. And he comes out of the tomb. That's living hope. You and I have hope because the tomb is empty, right? The throne is occupied. And so you can live wholeheartedly for his kingdom. You can seek his kingdom because he's alive. And he has given us a living hope. The second reason we can live wholeheartedly is this is that we have a permanent inheritance. We we can push through this broken, suffering world because we have a permanent inheritance. Um, How many of you have ever been on a trip and you've been been driving and you, you know you get to the hotel? This happened to me, actually. And you, you go up to the desk and you tell them your name, you have a reservation, and the guy looks at you and goes, 
What's the name again? This ever happened to anybody else? It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> the guy goes, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have that name. Wait, what? This, this happened to us, and we had, um, Cynthia and I had been driving for about eight hours, and we had two children under the age of four who were miserable. One of them had just given up, basically just screaming for hours. And we get to the hotel, finally we're going to get some rest, and the guy goes, you don't have a room. We don't have any rooms. So we end up having to go down the street and stay at basically in a box in an alley is what it ended up being. Um, but here, that'll never happen to us. Do you, do you see? You have an inheritance that can never, it's, it's never, it's never going to get canceled, Right? If you get to the hotel and your name's not on the little screen, it's over, right? Your name's on the screen in heaven. God's never going to look at it and go, I'm sorry, we don't have that name. If you put your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus, you have a permanent inheritance. It can never be taken away from you. After your long, painful journey in this world, the God of the universe is going to welcome you home. It's guaranteed. Third thing is this. We have divine protection. We can can live wholeheartedly because we are protected by the power of God. Do you see that? Verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. No matter how hard it gets. You're ultimately shielded. From wrath. Here's the problem. So many of us have bought into the reality that this is it. Right? I get 80 years. 90 if I'm lucky, and that's it. And that's all we're living for. This is not you, right? You, you, you're, uh, C.S. Lewis once said, uh, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. See the difference? How you think about that matters. This is what Peter is saying here. You are shielded by God's power, your soul, the core of who you are if you have said yes to Jesus, is shielded from the wrath of God, not from the brokenness of this world. So you may suffer. Death may destroy your body. But God has promised to protect your soul and to raise your body. You know you're going to get a better body, right? Immortality. No, nobody, we don't have an answer for suffering except Adam and Eve really screwed up in the garden. 
We have divine protection. It means you can live courageously in a broken world. Any Civil War buffs in the room? Just out of, I'm guessing no, right? This is the wrong crowd, wrong demographic. There's one guy, right? There's got to be one guy. You don't have to own it. Like, if you want to date, don't own it. It's a joke. It's a joke. Come on. Stonewall Jackson. Heard the name? Okay, so he got the name. You know why he got the name? They were in the middle of this intense battle, and he's sitting on his horse overlooking, like bullets flying everywhere, and he's just sitting there on his horse. And one of his guys says, says look at Jackson sitting like a stone wall. And so somebody asked him afterwards, how can you, like he was the calmest cat in battle. Somebody asked him why, and this is what he said. Uh, he was a very devout Christian. And he said, my religion teaches me that I am as safe on the battlefield as I am in bed until the good Lord is done with me. And so he just lived like it, like just charging the bullets. God's done, I'll get hit. If he's not, we'll just keep going. That's, I mean, that's what Peter said. Look, you can live fearless. Now, don't live recklessly. But you can live fearlessly in this world of brokenness because your soul is shielded by the power of God. You don't have to live in fear. What was that, number three? Number next. I don't even know what number we're on. What number are we on, four? Four. You, you can live wholeheartedly because you're... Your faith is developing. I don't know how else to say that. Let me, let me show you what I mean. You, you, um, the trials and the suffering that we go through in this world are bringing about a growing, strengthening faith. Peter, Peter acknowledges that his readers have been distressed by a lot of trials. And he doesn't try to downplay or dismiss the reality of it. But he offers a reason to rejoice in spite of, not because of the testing. Pain and suffering are in themselves not good. They are, the, again, the result of a broken world. So he, he, here, let me give you four truths that are in verses 6 and 7 about suffering and trials. They, they are necessary to humble us and to turn our attention from self to God. If you remember, the Apostle Paul says that the Lord had given him a thorn in the flesh. And it's so he will put his trust deeper and deeper into Christ. Another truth is this. They're painful and difficult. <laughs> It's okay to acknowledge that the world has some hurt in it. Third thing is this. They are varied and diverse and they come in a lot of different forms. At different times and for different durations. You need to learn this. 
in, in, in your 20s, hear me. You need to learn this. Some of you already know this. Pain is coming. You live long enough in this world, you're going to hurt. People you love are going to die. They're going to get sick. You may get sick. Hear me. It's coming. And I wish when I was your age, sitting in one of these seats, somebody would have told me that. Listen, the church in the West is full of lies about how comfortable life with Jesus can be. Listen to me. You live long enough, you're going to hurt. That's just truth. But you don't have to despair, okay? <laughs> it has a purpose. Look at the purpose. It is so that the genuineness of your faith will be proved. Verse 7. These have come, all the trials, so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Trials and suffering are like a refiner's fire in your life. They build your faith. When about maybe 10 years ago, we, we had some really good friends who lost a child. Less than a year old, died. And it was brutal. In, in the middle of that trial, the dad, Mike, shared with me. That he was confident that he would see his child again, but that more than anything, God was using it to refine him. That is supernatural. That's not normal. The world can't, they have no answer for that. Trials are for your ultimately for your good. They're not good while you're going through them. Don't misunderstand me. All these things merge together to bring about the development of a faith that can help you live wholeheartedly in a broken world. 
you can live wholeheartedly because of an unseen Savior. Now you may think, well, that, that doesn't really sound like a good thing. I can't see him. It's very good. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. So behind these words probably lie an, an event that happened several years earlier when Jesus reveals himself alive to Thomas. Do you remember that scene? Thomas is like, well, I'm not going to believe it until I see him. Right? I want to touch the scars. So Jesus honors his request, right? Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, he says, because you have seen me, have you believed Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's the category that Peter's readers find themselves in. They are especially blessed because though they have literally not seen Jesus, they still believe in him and love him. And that's the category you and I fall into. We see Christ most clearly in times of trial. Here's, here's the last reason you can live wholeheartedly. A guaranteed deliverance. Look at verse 9. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The salvation of your soul. God has the power to save us physically through trials. But even eventually, when our bodies give in to death, which they will, our souls are delivered. You, you are going to live forever. Do you understand that? That's reason alone to rejoice. If you've said yes to Jesus, this world can do nothing to you. Let me tell you who I believe knew that better than anybody. You ever heard of a guy named Lazarus? You remember this guy? Died? If you don't know this story, it's crazy. So... They get word to Jesus that he's ill, that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus just hits the pause button. He waits until Lazarus dies so he can go visit. When Jesus shows up, this, the two sisters, Mary and, Mary and Martha, are like undone. If you'd have been here, he would be alive. And Jesus says, well... This, this happened for a reason. Walks up to the tomb. Um, he's been dead four days. The King James, if you have a King James Bible, I, I believe it says, uh, somebody warns Jesus that uh, he stinketh, I think. But the, four days. Jesus calls his name, right? He comes, he comes out of the tomb. Right? Dead four days, Jesus raises him from the dead. He walks out. 
Do you think this dude ever feared death after that? Have you ever thought about that? What are you going to do to this guy? You bring him in front of a Roman, you know, executioner, and he goes, all right, let's go. You know I'm going to live forever, right? That's you. And so this idea that, that we, we have to live in fear and anxiety, and hear me, I'm not making light of it, right? It's real. I've sat down at enough tables with some of you in this room that I, I get it. Anxiety is a real thing. Listen to me. You don't have to live in that. You've been born again into a living hope with a guaranteed delivery of your soul. Caleb and the band's going to come out and we're going to sing about that truth that we have been born again to a living hope. You can live wholeheartedly because of that. If you'll seek his kingdom and his righteousness above the things of the world. Because the reality is, you're only going to get about, most of you, about 75 years here. Add 10,000 to that. Someday you'll be 10,075. Ever thought about that? I don't know if there'll be time in heaven, but... 75 is a short time. You're born again to a living hope. You can live wholehearted. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for the reality that we are born again to a living hope. That the tomb is empty, the throne is occupied, and we do not have to live in fear of the brokenness and the suffering of this world. We don't have to ignore it. But we can live victoriously through it because Jesus, you use those things to build our faith and our confidence in you. And so Lord, as we sing tonight, we sing that truth about you. In Jesus' name, amen.